All right, Habakkuk chapter number 2 begins this way in verse number 1. <clears throat> Habakkuk says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he, what God, will say unto me, what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Yea, also, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his, how long, and to him that ladeth himself with thick clay? Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, now shalt be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. Because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image, and a teacher of lies, that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols? Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Well, when we left Habakkuk at the end of last week, I don't know that we could say that he was in much better shape than how we found him at the beginning of the lesson. In fact, the sort of title of last week's lesson was that the prophet is troubled. Habakkuk, I would remind you, and I I don't want to labor too much in review, but I will give you this short synopsis. Habakkuk is basically troubled with a twofold problem. 
He looks around at the wickedness of the nation that he lives within. And he is troubled that a holy God is permitting wickedness to run so rampant amongst his people. Kind of sounds like the problems that some of God's people have today when we look around at our nation. And you know, I would even go a step further. Uh, While I love America, I believe that she is the greatest nation in the world for a lot of reasons. We have to acknowledge that America doesn't hold the place in God's heart that Israel does. And Israel, I mean, imagine being a Jew, being a, a prophet, being very likely a Levite, someone that labored in the ministry of the music of the temple, being someone like Habakkuk, and looking around at God's covenant people that have been yoked unto Him, that have been joined unto Him by covenant, and seeing the wickedness running wild. It'd be a troubling thing. And certainly we are troubled at the wickedness we see in society. So Habakkuk comes to God and he says, essentially, God, are you going to allow this? How can you, being as righteous as you are, allow this to take place? Well, whenever that happens, God replies back to Habakkuk and said, You know, Habakkuk, you're right, and I am too holy of a God to permit this to happen. So here's what I'm going to do, Habakkuk. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, and they are going to be my instrument of judgment upon the nation of Israel. You ever ask for something and realize that you asked for more than you meant to ask for? I've done that before. Uh, We have a a terminology, it's called biting off more than you can chew, you know? Habakkuk comes to God and he's he's troubled me. He says, God, judge your people. And God says, okay, I will judge my people and I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. Well, this did not alleviate uh, Habakkuk's turmoil. Instead, it deepened it because he then had this question. Well, God, if you're so holy that you cannot tolerate unrighteousness amongst your people, then how could you use a more wicked nation than Israel to judge Israel? In other words, uh, it seems as though Habakkuk, ideologically, theologically, he has jumped squarely out of the frying pan and deep into the fire. He is left at the end of chapter number 1 with absolutely no concrete answers that salve his soul as to what he is struggling with. He knows what God is going to do. But it is Habakkuk's very faith in God that drives him to this crisis. Now again, I'm not going to belabor it. You can go back when we upload it at least, and you can listen uh, to the lessons that we have already taught. But suffice it to say, if Habakkuk had been like the average Christian today, he would have just said, well, that's above my pay grade, oh well, and moved on. But it was Habakkuk's very, uh, the depth of his faith that drove him to instead persist in questioning God. We talked about the difference between unbelief and, and doubt. Unbelief is a willful thing. It's looking at what God says and saying, I choose to not accept that. Uh, whereas doubt is merely struggling with the realities of what God has said about himself. And that's what Habakkuk was dealing with. He was saying, God, if you say you are what you are, and I believe you are what you say you are, then why are the things happening that are happening? Well, that's where we sort of left Habakkuk at the end of chapter number 1. When we come to chapter number 2, if chapter number 1 shows us that the prophet is troubled, then in chapter number 2 we find that the prophet is taught. In other words, God teaches Habakkuk some things about his crisis, about his doubt, and about faith, and about the role that it plays in his life. Likewise, to chapter 1, we don't necessarily have any answers that, at least superficially, would make Habakkuk feel better. But God does not talk to Habakkuk about his problem. Rather, he talks to Habakkuk about the solution. Now, what I mean by that is this. He doesn't say, here, Habakkuk, here's your solution, everything's going to be better, just feel better. Rather, he shows Habakkuk how to be content in the midst of crisis. 
How to look at injustice in the world and rest in the providence of God, even when it seems as though no action is taking place. Now, when we look at this chapter, we find that it divides itself basically into two portions. And I almost even thought, because of the emphasis of the first portion, I even thought about teaching it backwards. You know, I do all kinds of things backwards. I'm just a backwards kind of guy. And I thought about teaching it backwards, teaching the second part first and the first part second. And God smote my heart and said, no, that's not how I wrote it. That's not how you should teach it. And I was reminded that once we settle our faith upon God personally, then whatever problems exist externally will rightly find their place in our life. In other words, we deal with what's going on between us and God, and then what's going on between us and everybody else, God will tend to and take care of. And so we find basically two portions to this chapter. Verses 1 through 4 present to us God's righteousness on the individual plane. Before he ever talks about the Chaldeans and how he's going to judge the Chaldeans and what he's going to do, he looks at Habakkuk and he essentially says this, Habakkuk, do you trust me? Do you trust me to do what is right? Do you trust me to do it in my time? Do you trust me to do it in integrity, in thoroughness, and perfection? Then after Habakkuk has found new uh, resolve and refreshment within his faith, he then turns his attention to the Chaldeans and he speaks of God's righteousness on the international plane. In other words, how's God going to deal with the Babylonians, with the Chaldeans? So as we move through this passage, I want you to notice a few things uh, that are contained in these first four verses, speaking of God's righteousness on the individual plane. Notice first off with me in verse number one, the eagerness of the prophet. Habakkuk begins by saying this, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Habakkuk begins this chapter by saying, Lord, I'm just going to sit here quietly and I'm going to wait and I'm going to listen to you. You know, Solomon in uh, Inspired Wisdom once made the statement that to everything there's a season and a time. And he goes down the line and he, and he begins to talk about there's time for war, there's time for peace, there's time for love, there's time for hate. And we might say when we listen to what Habakkuk's response is, we could certainly agree that there's a time to talk and there's a time to listen. In other words, there's times that part of the development of our faith with the Lord is certainly the pouring forth of our complaint and our burden unto Him. But you notice that when you come to the end of chapter number 1, Habakkuk has exhausted any uh, wisdom, intuition, or, uh, or knowledge he has on the situation. In fact, Habakkuk does something that we would all learn well to do. Once Habakkuk don't have anything left to say, he quits talking. He quits talking. Some of us, we wait until somebody shuts us up to quit talking. We, we, we might run out of stuff to say, but that don't stop us. We just keep plowing on through and talking. Habakkuk, why does he grow silent? Well, because really, to be frank, he has nothing else to say. At the end of chapter 1, he makes his case to God. And he says, God, I still don't understand what you're doing. I still don't understand why you're doing it in this way. And he does a very wise thing. He then stops, watches, and listens to learn from God about the part of the story that he must be missing. Notice his receptive attitude. He says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. Now, if possible, he was speaking explicitly, figuratively here. It's possible, or excuse me, literally here. It's possible that Habakkuk literally stopped and went to a watchtower on the city and there got alone with God and waited on God to answer him. That's entirely possible. In fact, I would even say it is plausible, bordering on probable. 
But I would remind you that whether or not he was physically on a watchtower or whether this is figurative language, the truths contained in it really hold true no matter which is, is the case. What was a watchtower? Well, there were basically two places you'd find a watchtower. One, a farmer might have a watchtower, the purpose of which is to watch over his crops. But the more common one would be in a city, and it would be a military structure. And the purpose of it, they would station someone on this watchtower, and his only job was to sit there, pay attention, and watch the horizon. He was watching to see what threats may arise or even what good news, what messengers uh, may come over the horizon with news to be born and brought to the city. And then and only then was he to turn and go to the king or whoever the official might have been and share the news that he had. In other words, it's almost as though Habakkuk saying this, you know, I don't have anything else to say about it. And my job is not to say what I think about it. My job is only to share what I know to be true, what I've seen with my own eyeballs, what has been delivered uh, to me from a credible messenger. And so, in the meantime, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up, I'm going to get by myself, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to watch, and I'm going to wait on God to make His will known to me. We are an impatient and fidgety people. I'm talking about fidgety in our soul. You ever fidget in your soul? I do it all the time, you know. I wish they had one of them fidget spinners for my soul to give me a lot of peace because my soul gets fidgety. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, sometimes I just have trouble waiting on God. I mean, sometimes I just, you know, if I'm in the midst of undesirable circumstances, sometimes I will do the wrong thing just to be doing something. It's one of my flaws personally. And probably for some other people in the room too, you struggle with that same thing. But here Habakkuk conveys to us a brilliant and profound piece of wisdom that when you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. And if there ain't nothing for you to do, don't do nothing at all. Just sit and wait and listen for God. Uh, Time spent waiting on God is not wasted time. Nowhere in the Bible, and I want to be careful how I say this, uh, it is true that there is a danger in idleness. There is also a danger in unsanctified activity. Going and doing and moving simply because you want to and because you're too impatient to wait on God. Habakkuk says, I'm going to go and I'm going to stand on the watchtower. And by the way, typically there'd be one person on that watchtower. It didn't take more than one person. And so they wouldn't have nobody to talk to. They'd stand up there in silence. And their only job was to be faithful in watching and waiting for the slightest sign to be unveiled to them. Herein I think we have the disposition of the believer that finds peace and wisdom in the will of God. We sit and we wait and we look for any indication of what God might be doing. And we wait until God has spoken before we move and before we seek to do anything. He says, I will set me upon my watch. It was an isolated place. It was not a place that was busy with activity. It was not a place where other men's opinions were weighed and counted and considered. But the only thing that mattered to the watchman was what came over the horizon, what came from the far country. That's all that mattered to him. And here's what he says he'll do. I will watch to see what he will say unto me. Habakkuk knows that his only hope for peace is in the revelation of God about the situation. You know, we live in a society today that is saturated with information. And I think there are some good things about that. I also think the reason we're seeing society come apart at the seams is because in this information age, we don't know how to separate what is truth and what is error. We have cast out the moral foundation and the ideological foundation of God's Word, and we now have no ability to to filter what information is given to us. 
And that can be a dangerous situation to be in. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that the, the media overlords ought to be the ones to filter it or the big tech people, or I ain't even talking about politics. I'm saying that this book right here ought to be what filters what you come into contact with. And I think that very often when we are at a loss, we do what Job did, or what we might say Job permitted to be done. We allow all of our friends to gather around us and give us every bit of unscriptural and unsolicited advice that they possibly can. You know, Job had a lot bigger problem with the bad advice that he received than he did with the bad events that happened. His faith was a lot more untainted at the end of his trials than it was at the end of his talks. At the end of his affliction, he says, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But I tell you, those friends that got around to give their opinion, they really took their toll on him. So much so that, and I know we tend to sort of enthrone Job and treat him like he, he didn't make any mistakes, but I think there's places you can look in the book of Job where just almost like Paul was tempted to do in Second Corinthians, he, he becomes a fool and glorying and he's trying to defend himself against these unwarranted accusations. I'm saying this, Job would have been better off without those friends around. Sitting in quietude, listening, waiting for the voice of God to give him direction. And that is what Habakkuk learns. Notice not only his receptive attitude, but notice his responsive attitude. I like this. He says, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now there's two things that strike me about that phrase. One, he uses the term reproved. He is fully anticipating God taking him to the woodshed for the conversation he had with him in chapter 1. And yet we find that God does not do that. Nowhere does God show up in the book of Habakkuk and fuss at Habakkuk for having the problems that Habakkuk had. Isn't God a gracious God? There's been times that I'll be honest, I, I've talked to God in ways that I wouldn't let my kids talk to me. But God has been patient with me and God has been gracious with me. And I'm just reminded that, listen, God is not here to flex on us and to prove His prowess and His strength. He already knows He's God. As his child, you know what he's here to do? He's here to nurture us, admonish us when we need it, and to strengthen our faith in him. We ought to approach God not with irreverence, but with the, the calm confidence that God is not waiting to knock us over the head with a mallet. He's here to try to help us grow in faith in him. Habakkuk uses the term reproof. And I think it's noble that Habakkuk was willing. Habakkuk didn't say, I'm going to go sit by myself and pout. Rather, he said, I'm going to go wait and listen to God. And I might not like what I hear, but if God delivers an unpleasant message to me, evidently I will have deserved it because God does all things well. There's a second thing I notice here that's of interest. He says, what I shall answer. So he understands that when God reveals something to him about this, it will demand a response, a reaction, a reply from him. Now, I don't want to get in the weeds on this, but it is a fitting place to say this. I remember hearing a preacher say one time, if you're walking down a path and you see a rock, you better kick it because you don't know when you're going to go down that path again. Well, we're walking down this path and this rock may be just loosely connected, but we're going to go ahead and kick it uh, anyway. We're not going to just leave it there. But when God gives us light, He gives us responsibility. When God reveals things to us, we then have a responsibility to walk in that light in that knowledge, in that truth. Every time God discloses something to us, we have a choice as to how we'll respond to it. And Habakkuk understands instinctively, if I want the answer, then that comes with certain responsibilities. 
We often beg God for wisdom about a thing. And we'll say, Lord, I, I need to know. I wonder. I, I, I've got to know. I've got to know. But then when God tells us, we don't want to reply or we don't want to respond in an appropriate manner. When God gives us knowledge about a thing, we then are accountable for that knowledge. We are to walk in the light that He shines on our path. So, I, you know, I see the responsive attitude. So here's the eagerness of the prophet. Then I want you to notice the enlightenment of the prophet. So verse number one, it's Habakkuk speaking. He tells us what he's going to do. Verse number two and three, we hear from God. Here's the answer that he has been waiting for. And God gives him uh, three truths, three, uh, three uh well, truths. We'll just say truths. <laughs> uh, three things that he wants him to understand. One is a truth regarding the truth of God. In other words, look at verse 2. He says this, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth. So in other words, God's reply is, I'm going to give you some truth. But, as we've already said, that truth comes with certain responsibilities. It's fitting that he has uh, cast himself as a watchman. Because it's almost like God has come on the horizon of his doubts and has brought him a message, but it is not for him alone. When the watchman's on the tower, the message concerns him, certainly, but it concerns a lot more people than just him. And he's to take that message and then carry it to other people that it concerns. It's, again, a reminder uh, that when God deals in our life, he's doing that, that we may minister that truth to other people as well. Everything you've ever been through that God's brought you through, he's brought you through that so that you could take that truth and not only apply it to your life, but then carry it to those that may be struggling with a similar thing. And so in that vein, God says two things about this truth. One, that it is to be recorded simply. He says, write the vision and make it plain upon tables. Now, when he uses the term tables there, uh, he's not talking about a kitchen table. But rather, he's probably talking about one of two things. He could be talking about a tablet. For instance, the Ten Commandments recorded on tablets of stone. And it's possible he's talking about a tablet. It's also possible that he's speaking of a public place in town where announcements could be made. We could use this terminology today, a bulletin board. A place where public notices would be given. And certainly if that's the case, it'd be in keeping with what's said in the next few moments. That this truth, this message is not for you alone, Habakkuk. But you are to record it simply so that other people can receive it as well. The second thing he mentions is that it is to be relayed swiftly. Now... I'll admit to you, the way that, that point is phrased, it sort of commits to a perspective. But I want to give you both ideas about what that could mean when it says that he may run that readeth it. Really, there's about two or three of them. One, it could be saying that the people to whom judgment is coming can read that and flee from the judgment that is headed their way. That's possible. I don't believe it's likely for the simple fact that the only judgment he's talking about in the next few verses is judgment upon the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans cannot avoid that judgment. They've already purchased it unto themselves through their evil deeds. So I don't think that's what it's talking about. It could be saying, when it uses the term run, it could be using it figuratively. Saying, in other words, like a man running a race. In other words, that people can respond appropriately to that truth, whatever uh, it may be. And he's just using the term figuratively as one way that you could express that. And certainly that could be true. Uh, again, I don't want to belabor it, but every time we're given truth, there's a responsibility to reply appropriately. But then three, and I think this is the most likely, when he says that he may run that readeth it, remember what the figure is here. Remember what the, the illustration is here. It's that of a watchman that is on a watch. So in other words, I think the idea is that the watchman sees the news or receives the message. 
He goes and posts that message in a public place, be it on a tablet that can be passed around, not a tablet like an iPad, but like a, like a tablet of stone. Or, it, you know, if you want to make it a real contemporary application, an iPad, sure. But uh, probably talking about a stone tablet or in a public place. Uh, and uh, then that a person is going to read that, take that news, then run to the next town and share that news where someone will take that news, run to the next town, because after all, that's how messages and information travel in that day. So in other words, he's saying this, that as this message is delivered, it's not only going to affect you, Habakkuk, but it's going to affect the next person that reads it, who's going to take it to the next person that reads it, who's going to take it to the next person that reads it, and so on and so forth. Now, there is an application immediately to the context of this passage. And it is certainly true that all of Israel needed to understand that God had a plan in dealing with the Chaldeans. But I am also struck by the fact that when you and I go through crises in our life, and I'm talking about spiritual difficulties, I'm talking about things where we're looking at God and saying, God, I don't understand a thing that you're doing. We need to be reminded of two things. One, we are not the first person to struggle in that manner. We're not the first person to struggle in that manner. If we couldn't look at anybody else, I think we could look at Habakkuk and say, here's an old boy that struggled with what he saw going on and what he knew about God. The second thing I think we ought to take from this is this. God does not despise the honest doubter. We gave a quote to that effect. You can go back in your notes and find it. But God does not despise the honest doubter, but rather he entreats him as a friend. Now, the disingenuous doubter, the willful unbeliever, the person that looks at God and says, Lord, I don't want to believe what you have to say. Uh, That person is treated as an enemy, sure. Uh, But the person that genuinely wants and trusts and knows who God is and, and desires to understand... God does not berate. God doesn't get impatient. Sometimes I'll get impatient with, with my kids when they don't understand what I'm telling them to do. But God never gets impatient with His children when they're genuinely struggling. He always treats us with kindness. But there's a third thing we need to understand. We're not the first person to go through it, but we're also not the last person to go through it. Now, one of these days, someone will be the last person. But if I read my Bible correctly, there's a few things going to happen between now and then. And we can rest in this truth that everything that we struggle with, we can either, uh, we can either squander the, the lesson that God teaches us, or we can lay it up in store, and what I mean by that is take it to heart and make it a part of our, our spiritual uh, makeup, who we are, what God's done in our life, and look for opportunities to share it with somebody else, knowing that they then are probably, if they're faithful to that commission, they're going to do the very same thing. In other words, there's somebody coming after you. I heard a preacher preaching the other day, and he's preaching on the children of Israel passing through the Red Sea and how long that procession would have been. And he says, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that would have made it to the other side while all the rest of them were still in the middle. And really, if you, I mean, there's probably two million people strong crossing the Red Sea. If they were in a certain size column, it's very likely that there were some already on the other side while these were stepping in on this side. And he gave the illustration of what a comfort it must have been when those folks up at the front spoke back to those folks still in the middle of it and said, just keep on coming. God's made a way. God's going to deliver us. And what a greater comfort that would have been when those folks in the middle uh, hollered back at the folks just getting their, their foot down into that dry riverbed or, or seabed and said, hey, we've heard from the front of the line and we're going to make it through. In other words, you're not the first one. You're not the last one. Somebody's coming after you and they need to hear the encouragement and hope that God gives in His Word as well. 
So, he gives him a truth or, or enlightenment regarding the truth of God. Number two, he gives him enlightenment regarding the timing of God. Verse number three says this, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Now what does he mean when he says speak and not lie? It's speaking even now when God gives it. But what he's saying is in that day, it's going to testify that it is the truth. It's going to be borne out that what I'm telling you, and this is God speaking to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, when that day comes, it's going to be proven that I have spoken the truth. Then he says this, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. I think it's funny. I've heard preachers, and I've done this my whole life. I've prayed and said, you know, uh, if the Lord tarries, it's coming. You ever said that before? We'll do this, we'll do that. Lord will, if the Lord tarries, it's coming. And I've had folks fuss at me before, say, you know, preacher, the Bible says that He'll come and He'll not tarry. And yet there's other places where the Bible says He's coming and He's not tarrying, but it's going to look like He's going to tarry. In other words, what does it mean to tarry? It means to be tardy. And what's God saying here when He says... It will surely come, it will not tarry. But he just got through saying, though it tarry. He's saying, on your watch, it's going to look like it's tardy. But on my watch, it's going to be just on time. Let me read a quote to you. The prophet found that humans want to measure justice in the short term. God is just only if God acts according to our schedule. And if God agrees with our evaluation of what is just and what is fair and who is evil and who is not fair. Habakkuk learned that God is just if one waits to see the long-term work of God who in His sovereignty and eternity chooses to work according to His timetable and according to His understanding of the ways of His people and the needs of His people. Now I want you to listen to this. His justice does not always work for every individual or even for every generation. I want to read that again. I want you to hear it. His justice does not always work for every individual or even for every generation. If you think that life is always going to close out all accounts and tally every wrong by the time a man hits his deathbed, I'm sorry, but that's simply not true. There's plenty of people that will go to their deathbed having been the victims of injustice in this time. You say, preacher, isn't that a contradiction? God is a just God. No, because I said in this time. This time is not the end of all time. God's got his own timetable. To see God's justice, one must take a stand on the watchtower and wait for God's timing and God's revelation. Still one may find only divine presence and divine word. The divine action to bring justice and intercession may wait for another day or may bring judgment on the people who expected salvation. That is God's business. In other words, you're not always going to see that things make sense. There's going to be times, and I promise you, listen, whenever Mary and Martha were standing outside of that tomb, they thought, it's too late. It's too late. He's waited too long. The Jews even say accusingly to the Lord when He begins to raise Lazarus, Lord, by this time, He's stinking. It's too late. And it sure looked like it at that time. It looked like Jesus had tarried. In fact, the Bible tells us that He waited. He tarried a couple days after He heard the news. And He did it expressly to let Lazarus die. He didn't do it because He had other things going on. He didn't do it because He had a load of clothes in the dryer and He couldn't leave it. He did it because He wanted Lazarus to perish. Why did He do that? Well, He tells His disciples this sickness is not unto death. He didn't say that this sickness is not through death. 
He said this sickness is not unto death. He didn't lie to him. Lazarus passed through death, but death wasn't the ending point for him. It wasn't unto death. It went beyond death. He said this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. Sometimes it's going to look like God's waited too long. Sometimes people may even go to their grave not having seen the justice that they believe was rightfully theirs. But do we have any right then to shake our fist at God and say, God, you've done messed up? No, because God's watch don't work like our watch. God is eternal in His perspective and in His scope. Sometimes it's going to look like it's Terry, but we find out that it will not Terry. It's going to happen exactly when God wants it to happen. Look at the next phrase. He gives them one final revelation here. Now you're thinking, preacher, we ain't never going to get through this chapter. But we are, I promise you. It may take us six or seven weeks, but we will. (laughs) No, we'll, we'll make it through by the end of the night tonight, believe it or not. He gives him enlightenment regarding God's trustworthiness. Verse number four. One of the most important verses probably in the Bible, if we can say those kinds of things. It's all the Word of God. It's all good. But certainly a meaningful, pivotal verse, a transformational verse uh, in God's dealings with mankind. It says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. This is the first of three wonderful assurances that God gives in this chapter to encourage His people. This one emphasizes God's grace, because grace and faith always go together. Uh, Verse 14 emphasizes God's glory and assures us that though this world is now filled with violence and corruption, it shall one day be filled with God's glory. The third assurance uh, is in verse number 20, and it emphasizes God's government. Empires may rise and fall, but God is on His holy throne, and He is King of kings and Lord of lords. However, that's not the only trinity that this verse is a part of. In fact, you'll find that there are three times in the New Testament that this very verse is quoted. It's quoted in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 17. It's quoted in Galatians chapter 3, and I I believe it's verse 18. It might be verse 17. Uh, And then it is quoted for us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 38. In fact, it seems like this was a pivotal verse in the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul in understanding the reconciling of God's dealing in the Old Testament and God's dealing in the New Testament. In this sense, that it has always been by faith. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's always been by faith. And that's the reason that when Paul talks about it in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 17, he says, For therein is the uh, righteousness of God revealed, as it is written, from faith to faith. In other words, that it was faith in the Old Testament, it's still faith in the New Testament. It's been that the just shall live by faith since Habakkuk's day, and of course that's still true in this day that we live in. Time would fail us to say everything we would desire to say about this verse. For there are similitudes between what Habakkuk is experiencing and the characteristics of his faith in this moment and how that a man is justified by faith in his uh, relationship with and to God. In other words, there's things we could look at, and if the Lord lets me, I want to preach on it at some point, uh, things that we can look at about Habakkuk and what he's dealing with and how he understands faith and how the sinner comes to know Christ and believe on God. But suffice it to say that this verse, evidently, not just by human experience, but by the authenticity of God's usage of it in His Word, it plums deeper depths than merely the struggle that Habakkuk is dealing with. It reveals to us something uh, that is foundational about how man interacts with God. And that is that the currency that God considers, and the premise of our dealings with Him, 
And the, the position of our relationship in this life is all founded on this thing called faith. Now, what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 defines it for us by saying faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We could simply define faith as uh, the effectual trust in God's Word. Believing what God says and responding appropriately to that belief. But what I'm struck by is in the immediate context, this, by the way, it's interesting when you study, that's the theme of Romans, it's the theme of Galatians, it's the theme of Hebrews, but each one of them bears a different emphasis. In Romans, the emphasis is on the just and how God justifies a man. In Galatians, it's on shall live and the life of faith and how that we've not just begun in the Spirit and then we switch gears to something else, but that this life that we live is a life of faith. Can I remind you, Paul says that we walk by faith and not by sight. He don't just say we get saved by faith. He says we walk by faith. Now, I don't mean to say by that that if we have lapses of faith that God throws us away and unsaves us. But what I do mean to say is that our need of faith in our relationship with God and our righteousness, not in the maintaining of our standing with God, but in us living for the Lord, uh, the moment of salvation is not the end of that need, it's the beginning of that need. In other words, you don't just need faith when you get born again. If you're going to be the Christian God wants you to be, you're going to need faith day by day. And then the book of Hebrews emphasizes that truth of faith. The just shall live by faith. And of course the book of Hebrews, and particularly chapter 11, is centered on this topic of faith. What does Habakkuk learn from it? We could simply say this. Habakkuk recognizes that if he is to live for God, to stand for God, and to maintain confidence in God, it's going to require faith. Now this seems very rudimentary. I understand that. It seems very elementary. But if you're like me, you still struggle with it. Sometimes we get the idea that we trust God by faith, get born again, ask Christ to forgive us and save us, we're made a child of God. And then from that day forward, everything should always just make sense. And we should be able to easily categorize everything God's doing and and, and wrap it up and put a bow on it and be able to give a nice three-point outline to everything God does and everything's always going to make sense. Even though the Bible explicitly tells us that there will be a perpetual need of faith if we are to live righteously in this wicked world. We still struggle with it. Habakkuk's problem was answered in this simple truth. Habakkuk, this is not a bug of the system. It is a feature. This is not a problem in your relationship with God. The fact that you don't understand me. The fact that you can't figure me out. The fact that you're just going to have to trust me even though it looks like things are not going the way that you think they should. Habakkuk, that doesn't mean I fell off my throne. That has always been the criteria of a man's dealings with God. That there has to be a... a, a uh, relenting and an assenting of spirit unto the Lord and that you must be willing to say, Lord, even when I don't understand you, I'm going to trust you. Job, I think, expressed this exquisitely and of course the Holy Spirit did through Job when he said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. If your criteria for living for God is that you're always going to have to understand him, you won't make it out those doors. You're going to have to learn that sometimes God won't make sense in in our reckoning. And we then have a choice. We either decide that God's wrong or we're wrong. Habakkuk learns that he's wrong. Not wrong in the sense of immoral or sinful, but wrong in his handle of the situation. But most people instead look up and say, I don't understand it. God must have made a mistake. And yet we have evidence after evidence, an unbroken, unblemished record 
that God never has made a mistake. And He's not going to begin now. This is given to us, by the way, in comparison to the prideful man, which enters into the remainder of this chapter, which you don't believe me, but we're going to move through very quickly. Look at the beginning of verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. Isn't it interesting the way God says that? His soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. And then he does not say his soul which is faithful is just. But rather he says the just shall live by his faith. In other words, the initial in that statement, the, the, the origin in that statement is the justness of a man that then produces faith. The converse is true when he talks about the prideful man. He says the man that is prideful is not upright. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about how God reckons a man. And he's saying if a man is prideful and seeks in his own strength to go about his life in his own way, and we could say distinctly, especially in this dispensation of grace, we have uh, you know salvation and, and, and the new birth loom largely in our mind, and appropriately so. The man that's trying to get to heaven through his own self-righteousness, that man is not upright. It does not say he is degenerate or depraved. It says he's not upright. What does that mean? To be able to stand up in integrity. In other words, it means that man can't stand before God. But the man that is just... Now, how did a man become just? Well, the same way that Abraham did. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. That's how he became just. That just man, that justness in his life, meaning the fact that he stands in a relationship with God, will then produce faith in his behavior. But the the comparison here is with the prideful man. And that's appropriate because God's going to begin to talk about, verse 5 to the end of the chapter, He's going to talk about God's righteousness on the international plane. We could maybe say it this way, that God looks at Habakkuk and says, Habakkuk, I've given you your marching orders. You are to trust me. We do not have an answer from Habakkuk, but I think it could be taken reasonably for granted that Habakkuk accepted that answer. We certainly could say that's true by the time we get to chapter 3. Man, he's in the glory by the time you get to chapter 3. When you close out the end of this book, and I don't want to get ahead of it because I don't want to preach over my notes. I, don't want, I want to have a good time next week too. But when you come to the end of it, Habakkuk starts talking about even though there's no calves in the field, even though there's no grain in the, in the granary, even though everything looks bad, even though it's all falling apart, yet I will trust in him. Evidently, Habakkuk was picking up what the Lord was laying down here. The Lord was saying, you're going to have to trust me, Habakkuk. And evidently that satisfied Habakkuk. And then God begins to disclose what he's going to do about the Chaldeans. Now, isn't that interesting? God doesn't give us more of the plan until we've accepted our part in the plan. Some of us are waiting for the rest of the plan before we decide whether or not to trust him. We're waiting for God to give us the rest of the details and then we'll sign off. But God don't work that way. He says, this is what I expect of you. And once we say, yes, sir, Lord. I will gladly do that. Then he says, all right, now I'll tell you a little more of what I'm doing in your life. And that's what he does for Habakkuk. And he basically describes two portions here. The first is in verse 5, and he describes the wars of the Chaldeans. He says, yea, also, because he... Now, who's he? He's the, he's the man that, uh, that is, uh, is prideful, that's lifted up. That's mentioned in verse 4. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. 
Now, while we could certainly make practical application of that verse, I would just merely point to the fact that that is an explicit description of the Babylonians. They particularly were uh, were were wine bibbers and were people that uh, lived lives that were centered upon leisure and indulgence. You remember on the night that the Medo Persians destroy that they sack Babylon. What are they doing? They're down in those underground catacombs of the city, those big banquet halls, uh, having a ha- having a kegger down there and worshiping their false gods. So he's describing the disposition and the iniquity of the Chaldeans and says because of that uh, he's a proud man, neither keepeth at home. And certainly that was true of of the Babylonians, they had imperial ambitions. They enlarge his desire as hell and is as death, meaning they bring destruction and death along with them and cannot be satisfied. They're going to continue pushing. They're going to continue trying to consume. They, he gathereth unto him all nations and heapeth unto him all people. This describes sort of the warlike disposition of the Chaldeans. Then begins a series of what we could call woes, the woes of the Chaldeans. And God begins to pronounce five separate woes upon them. Now, a woe is a pronouncement of judgment. And typically, it'll be accompanied with the reason for that judgment. And it is in all uh, five of these instances. So let's move through these very quickly, and then we'll be done tonight. The Lord will deal with, number one, their crimes. Look at verse number six. Shall not all these take up a parable against him? Now, who are these? These are the people that they have heaped unto themselves, the conquered people that they have subjugated. Shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. The first thing he mentions is the property that they had stolen. He says that all these that they have have violated and victimized are going to one day stand and bear witness against them that Babylon has filled her coffers with the pillage and with the theft of the nation. It's interesting because when you read in the book of Revelation about the description of that end-time Babylon, meaning the uh, empire of the Antichrist, it talks about the great whore of Babylon that's drank the cups of all the nations of the world. And it's talking about how that all of the economy and all of the uh, mercantile and all of the finance has flowed under that one place. Uh, You know, God, when He uses symbolism, He does it for a reason. Uh, He describes the Antichrist empire like that and likens it to Babylon because likewise that's how Babylon... Babylon was. They taxed and they pillaged and they stole. And God says, everything you took is going to one day come back and bear witness against you. I like the way God says it at the end of verse 6. It says, to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. In other words, they thought they were scooping up earth, scooping up territory, picking up treasures. But the figure here is of a man that is wading through a muddy bog. And with every step he takes, he cakes more mud on his legs. The more he marches, the more he piles on. God says, all this is weighing you down, and one of these days, there's going to be a reckoning. You know, that's even in our life the way it is when we let sin in our life. We think we're marching ahead in our will and in our strength, but we're like that man in that muddy bog. Every step we take, we're just piling more on, piling more on. The burden gets heavier, and there's more to have to answer for. Then he talks about the people they had slain. Verse 7, Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee? And thou shalt be for booties unto them, meaning for loot unto them. He's saying, you've looted them. 
one day they're going to loot you. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. Because of men's blood and for the violence of the land and of the city and of all that dwell therein. Let me just make a cursory statement about this and then we'll move on. The Bible teaches abundantly the law of sowing and reaping. And what he's saying here is, You've slain all these people, but it's not over. You've made them spoil, and you have looted them, but that's not the end of it. One of these days, you're going to be spoiled. You're going to be looted. One of these days, God is going to put back on your head the things that you have heaped upon others. Hey, child of God, let me encourage you. I know there's a lot of wickedness and ugliness in this world, but ain't nobody getting away with nothing. Not me, not you, not that crowd in Washington or Hollywood or anywhere else. Ain't nobody getting away with nothing. God's going to settle all accounts. He may not do it in my life or in your life. We may not live in this life to see it. But I promise you, eternity will bear it out. So he talks about their crimes. Number two, he talks about their covetousness. Look at verse 9. He says, Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Now, what is covetousness? Well, this is the definition I like to give. It is not wrong to desire things. Desire and covetousness are not the same thing. Ain't nobody in here that don't desire certain things. I would say this, jealousy and covetousness are not the same thing. Jealousy is possessiveness over something that you deem to be rightfully yours. God is a jealous God. Now, why is He allowed to be jealous? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Uh, There ain't nothing that He's jealous over that don't belong to Him and He has a right to be jealous over. So what is covetousness? Well, the first time covetousness is talked about in the Bible, uh, or at least is defined for us, explicitly condemned for us, is when the Ten Commandments are given. And it talks about you can't covet your neighbor's wife, uh, your neighbor's livestock, your neighbor's house. Now, here's the funny thing about that wife and that livestock and that house. Can't two people own it? If you have that wife, your neighbor don't have that wife. If you have that livestock, your neighbor don't have that livestock. It does not say to not covet a livestock like your neighbor's livestock. It doesn't say don't covet a woman that's as pretty as your neighbor's wife. But rather it says do not covet these things. To covet is to desire to take something that belongs to someone else and possess it for yourself. That can be motivated by pettiness, the simple desire for them not to have it. But I think likewise it can be uh, defined as our desire at their expense and in an immoral and appropriate way to desire something at their expense and loss. So what he's saying about the Chaldeans, he describes them as a people that have sought to take away the security of all those around them, that they might build themselves. He uses this language that he may set his nest on high. And this is why he wants to do it, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. The term evil in your Bible, is it can be used morally, but very often it is used practically. Uh, the term evil can mean something that is immoral or that is wicked, but oftentimes it can simply mean something that is unpleasant. And he's saying that they've done this, they have, they have exposed everyone else, they have robbed everyone else, because they want to be protected. Well, what's going to happen? He says, Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and has sinned against thy soul. He's saying words getting around about what you've done. People know how the Babylonians are. He says then this, For the stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer. The picture is that they've torn down other people's houses to build their house. One of these days, that beam that used to be in their neighbor's house is going to cry out against them. 
that stone that used to build their neighbor's foundation is going to cry out against them. In other words, one day, God is going to bring justice upon them for how they have victimized other people. He then talks about their cruelty. Verse 12, Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? Now, you say, well, who are those people? Well, they're the people that are building. Isn't that what he says? Buildeth a town with blood, establisheth a city by iniquity. He says those people that do that, they're going to labor in the very fire, and they're going to weary themselves for very vanity. In other words, there'll be no peace in it, there'll be no pleasure in it, and there'll be no permanence in it. It'll be like God says about robbing God of His tithes. He'll make it that your bags have holes in them, and you can stow as much money as you want, and it's just going to fall out the other side. In the same way, He's saying, when men through their cruelty seek to enlarge their borders, when they through their cruelty seek to uh, establish themselves, God is going to see to it that they'll find no peace in that and that they'll find no permanence in it. And here's why. Man, I love this. This, by the way, there's five times this prophecy is given in the Bible, and this is the last of them. It says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know why it does not pay to do that? Because at the end of the day, nothing we could ever earn will ever really belong to us in the long run. Everything belongs to God. Uh, It's understood, I think, in this verse... That these people in doing this are going to draw the ire of the Lord for two reasons. One, because God is a just God. Wouldn't it be a shame to mistreat people to get things that we don't get to keep anyway? Wouldn't it be a shame to treat people uh, violently and viciously to attain things that we don't even get to hang on to? You say, what things do we not get to hang on to? You know, these temporal things. What a shame it would be for our life to be characterized by cruelty in pursuing after things that we can't even hold on to. But there's a second reason. Not only because God's a just God, but because He's a jealous God. They, in doing this, are implying that they can attain these riches and this land and this wealth and this power and this prominence, and no one can take it away from them. And God says, I can. It's mine. You can try to take it away, but you can only have it if I give it to you. You can't take it away by yourself. This is what Paul meant when he said that no man hath received any or hath gotten anything that he's not received of the Lord. Everything you've got, God's give to you. That means the only way really to get things is to get them from God. Because at the end of the day, it's all God's to give away in the first place. Now, I'll tell you, I mean, I'll just, I'll tell you right now, Jim, Jim has $200 in his wallet and I'm giving it to you. You just split it up evenly. You can have it. Uh, and, and I don't, listen, I, and I, listen, don't thank me. I'm just trying to be generous. I'm just trying to be kind. No, that don't work. You know why? Because Jim might have something to say about that. You know what he might say? <clears throat> that wasn't your money to give away, preacher. That was my money. If you want that $200, you better go to Jim and ask him, and I encourage every one of you to do it after the service tonight. <laughs> you better go to him and ask because it's his to give away. When we try to, to grab life and take it unto ourselves through our own means, it's always a fool's errand. Because no man can really have anything that he hadn't gotten from God because everything belongs to God and it's God's to give away in the first place. So he talks about their cruelty. Then he talks about their carousing. Verse 15. He says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou, thou mayest look on their nakedness. By the way, and I'm not talked about this, but there is a progression here. Uh, when people through greed seek to uh, greed and covetousness seek to build their life unto themselves, 
When they find that that's not easy to do, they'll use cruelty to do it. Then when they finally get those things under themselves, they'll find they don't satisfy and they'll turn to other pursuits to try to satisfy them. There's a progression in these woes that is given. And this one is speaking, the, the commentator used the term carousing. He's describing, uh, how would we say this? He's describing drunkenness, but he's also describing uh, uh, willful, illicit seduction of other people through means of alcohol. He's saying you take drink and put it to your neighbor's lips so that you can uncover their nakedness, behold them. You're trying to seduce them. You're trying to manipulate them and coerce them and abuse them. He's saying that's what that's leading to in your life. Uh, That's what that drink is going to do. What does God say is going to happen? Verse 16, he says, thou art filled with shame for glory. He's saying where you should have glory, you think you're going to be proud of what you've done. In fact, you're just going to get shame. Then he says, drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee. In other words, what you've done to them is going to be done unto you. Not through these same wicked, illicit means, but God is going to expose your nakedness. God is going to bring shame upon you. God is going to humiliate you. And then he says this, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about vomiting. He's saying, it looks real beautiful to you, but you ought to see what it looks like to the rest of the world. This isn't my message, uh, but isn't it funny? I, I've, I've prayed beside the beds of dying drunks. I, I've, I've on, a, on a church bus picked up kids that had to stumble out of, out of pot smoke and drug haze and, and alcohol and all that mess. I've seen the bruises on their arms and the cigarette burns on them. And I ain't never seen Budweiser show any of that on a commercial. They always show it as though, man, it's just all glory. It's all uh, women in bikinis playing volleyball and, and, and horses and sleds and sleighs and whatever else it is. Man, they don't ever show the ugly side of it. God says, I'm going to show the ugly side of it. And I'm going to put it back onto your head, this wickedness. It's interesting language, verse 17. He says, For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts, which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein. It seems as though he's talking about the cedars of Lebanon that were decimated, carried back to Babylon for building projects, and the animals that were slaughtered in this pursuit. And then he even talks about for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein. It's almost like he's saying even creation is going to bear testimony to your wickedness, that God will avenge them. Now listen, I, I, I'm, I'm not an eco-person. I'm not an eco-anything. To me, conservation means if you catch a fish, if you ain't going to eat it, you throw it back. If you're going to eat it, put it in the frying pan. You know, I, I'm not a conservationist. I, I'm not somebody that worships Mother. There ain't no Mother Earth. There's only Father God. But I will say this. This is God's creation. And God will deal with man over their ill stewardship of it. And he'll do it in perfect measure and justice. But this verse seems to betray this truth. And then finally, in verses 18 through 20, he talks about their cults, their idolatry. He says, What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven? The molten image and a teacher of lies that maketh the work, maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Now, time won't allow us to say everything I'd love to say about it. But we could summarize it in this way. He's saying, why are they pursuing after false gods? All these gods have the power to do. A false god does not have the power to deliver. It only has the power to deceive. The reason is because it is merely the manifestation of a man's self-deception. When a man worships an idol, he's not really worshiping an idol. He's worshiping himself. 
his ambitions, his desires, his lusts. And God points out that these Babylonians were idolaters. And he's saying, why are they doing this? And then he pronounces a woe, verse 19. He says, woe unto him that saith to the wood, awake, to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. This is a common practical statement. He's saying how foolish that is. How foolish that is. Now, we can talk about ancient idolatry and modern-day idolatry. And I'd say this. There's, there's as much idolatry today in, in, in the world and even in the West as there ever was in ancient days. It just takes different forms today than it did. But this truth holds the same. If it ain't God, it can't do anything for you. If it ain't God, it can't do anything for you. One of the most profound statements in the book of Hosea, whenever God's condemning the idolatry of Israel, He simply says this, It is not God. Talking about their idol. It is not God. Can I say about the things in our life, and I'm going to take a little liberty and preach for about 20 seconds here. Hang in. Uh, Whatever it is, your job, it may be good, but it is not God. Your kids and grandkids, they may be good, man. And I listen, I got kids. I love them. And I ain't got grandkids, but I see, uh, I see the way they pull the wool over my parents' eyes, so they must love them. They're good. I love them. But it is not God. We all have to have a paycheck to live. I understand that. That money, it is not God. Now, I'll let you and the Holy Ghost do the rest of the preaching on the car ride home about whatever it is in your life. But suffice it to say, anything that doesn't begin with the word God could be followed by the phrase, It is not God. Look what he says, verse 20. But the Lord, (laughs) I love this, is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Now there's two things that I think are suggested here. One, he is reminding Habakkuk that the Lord's sitting in heaven and that He's in control over all things. But you know, I think there's another thing that's hinted at here. At this time, the temple still stood. I'm talking about at this time, Solomon's temple still stood. The worship was still being maintained to some degree there in Jerusalem. And even in as much as man had neglected that office, God still had certain promises attached to that place. And it's almost like the Lord's reminding Habakkuk. I know the, the enemy armies are marching in. I understand they, they are unchallenged and unchecked. I understand idolatry is running rampant. I understand wickedness is going on. But hey, there's still a church house. There's still a place you can get along with God. There's still a place God sits. There's still a place God is working. And can I remind you of this, child of God? I know how wicked this world is. I see it just like you do. But hey, there's still a place that God dwells amongst His people. There's still a place God's working. There's still a place that God is moving in hearts. Not just confined to the, to the brick and the uh, sheetrock of this place, but God still dwells within His people. We're the temple of the Holy Ghost. God's still working even in this place. I've, I've got a quote. I'm not going to take the time to read it. I, if you want it, I can, I can send it on to you later. But I would just say this. Four things that we learn from this chapter. One, history, regardless of how it seems to us, is under God's control. We may look at it and say, Preacher, don't look like God's nowhere on the scene. Well, He may not be on the scene, but He's above the scene. And He's surveying the scene. And He's in control of every single thing. Secondly, history follows a divine plan. Nothing happens by accident. does not mean man doesn't have free will and choice. Of course he does. But it just means God's so sovereign, He's not afraid of your choice, your free will. He allows for man to make his choices, and they are true and legitimate choices that mankind makes. But mankind has never made a choice 
that has made God shake on his throne. He's still in control. History follows a divine plan. Number three, history follows a divine timetable. Things are going to happen when, not just the way God wants, but when God wants. God has not run a minute late ever in all of his life, which stretches from eternity past to eternity future. He has always and ever been on time. You say, preacher, how can that be? Well, we might say it this way. It's not that God's on time. It's that time's on God. God's in control of it. And God, His will determines what appropriate timing is. And then fourthly, history is bound up with the divine kingdom of God. You say, preacher, why are the things happening the way that they're happening? Because God's working in this world, and His chief place of working in this world is with His people. If we want to understand why things are happening the way that they're happening, we don't need to look to Washington. We don't need to look to Hollywood. We don't need to look to academia. We don't need to look to Ivy League schools. We don't need to look to World Economic Summits to understand what's going on. I know they got their plans, and let them plan. Man plans and God laughs. I know they got their plans, but we want to understand what's going on. We need to look two places. We need to look to Israel, and we need to look to the Church of the Living God. Those two perspectives will adjust everything that's going on. I'm not saying you'll have every answer. But I'm saying in it you'll see the unfolding of God's divine hand. You'll see His signature and touch upon the world events that sometimes shake us, but should not shake our faith in Him.